fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Several shots were fired as President Kennedy's motorcade passed through downtown Dallas. None of us will ever forget this day. Yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. This is just say again, please. Oh, you're coming out of our home. Welcome to the Hagman Daily Show, weekdays 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And now your hosts, Joe Hagman and John Robertson. Hello and welcome to this Wednesday, August 8th, 2018 edition of the Hagman Daily Show. I know I said I wasn't going to play that intro anymore, but uh, it just felt weird. I didn't have a way to bring in the show. I was going to just start with this clip from Ocasio-Cortez, and we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, the, the upper middle class doesn't exist anymore in America, but I want to play this clip and listen to her response. Um, it's kind of a long video, but I've only watched the first minute. And this lady, uh, I have not watched any of the interviews with her um, up to this point, really. I haven't paid that much attention, but many people have talked about how she's out of touch. She doesn't, you know, she's flip-flopping. She has no real uh, political uh, sense it seems with what she's saying I mean, let's take a listen to this uh interview clip here to the to the right on kavanaugh on some uh, on nominees or whatever to demonstrate that i'm moderate enough to win in west virginia and your view is that there's actually a a, a more left progressive working class the agenda whole that country, can work the whole country is further left than congress the whole country, and this is in poll after poll after poll, 80% of Americans believe in responsible uh, gun legislation. 60% of Americans believe in a single-payer health care system. The overwhelming majority of Americans believe in a living wage. Like, like the electorate is way further left than Congress. And, you know, we have low voter turnout and – I'm just amazed sometimes when I speak to um, either right. incumbents or when I'm, I speak we to people. We can stop right there. But just, listen to these. What is she saying? Where is she getting her numbers from? Is this really the best they can do is cite their own bias, one-sided polls that have proven time and time again to be completely wrong based on, you know, <laughs> demographics and information that you know only polls democrat i mean who's in her ear telling her to go on these interviews and just to basically make up statistics because nothing she said in that interview that we just listened to is true she is citing numbers she has no basis in fact for all she said was poll after poll well, what polls is she looking at? Is she is she looking at the, the you know just Huffington Post and other online uh, left wing organizations polls? Because we saw even those uh, more reliable polls during the twenty eighteen or I'm sorry twenty sixteen election of President Trump all were shown to be wrong, and it's amazing to me. And we just had a number of uh, elections last night, primaries and elections, which. Uh, the Ohio race, obviously, everybody knows it will stay uh, on the Republican side. It was very close. 
But Trump boasts he went five for five in Tuesday's elections. So when this Ocasio-Cortez is saying, you know, the American public is far left of Congress, is much more, uh, you know, they're for a living wage, a, sing- a single-payer health care. I mean, this is her warped view of their own, uh, you know, extreme echo chamber that these people have. And this is back to the issue of censorship. This is exactly, uh, you know, they can get away with this stuff. The further that they censor the voices of the opposition, the more they'll be able to push, uh, you know, their crazy statistics, their crazy ideas, and not so crazy. They're very well coordinated and manipulated lies. And this is what we see, uh, you know, is the future being, being hailed as the future of the Democratic Party. And she goes on to say in this interview that, the middle upper middle class is gone in a braggadocious way and thinking i I don't know again this warped mentality uh, somehow in her world that is a good thing that the upper middle class is gone extending the division between uh you know and this is one of the key things in these totalitarian authoritarian regimes throughout history is the gap between the wealthy and uh everybody else gets so great and by saying the upper middle class is gone you're essentially saying that you are for these you know really tiers of uh economic um whatever you want to call it your your economic your country's economic uh divisions and we see historically when you have these authoritarian regimes rise the control of the economy is central to the bureaucratization and we have a two Uh, class system in these totalitarian authoritarian regimes you have the government and the elite which are wrapped into one and then you have everybody else and that's what this socialist communist push is for it is to further divide the uh, wealth the the classes of wealth in this country it's to further divide the uh, and, and increase the racial animosities and that's what cnn on their network has uh, devoted themselves to trump hate and uh, increase the amount of victimization and racism and and create it out of whole cloth because it really doesn't exist anywhere uh, in the world where i see it except on you know maybe a few extreme uh, people here and there but you don't it's not as prevalent as problem as they are making it out to be and in their constant lying and their propaganda I mean, you can't even find out what's going on in the world today in regular news. And this is what's so frustrating to me. Each and every day, I see stories that on their own, on a normal day, whatever is normal anymore, would be top headlines for a day or two, not even getting coverage on the news. I mean, you have 70-some people shot in Chicago in a 72-hour period, and it gets like a mention. Uh, I mean, this stuff is crazy. You have all this violence, the censorship, the uh, you you have the elections, you have information coming out on the DOJ and Hillary Clinton. You have all all kinds of stuff going on. But the, you know, obviously the most important thing now is the uh, social media censorship and the future of internet broadcasting and freedom of speech. And whether it's for the uh, reasons that they say, which I don't believe so, and timing is an issue why now uh what are they doing you know over here they they they, obviously the censorship as important story as ever that i've covered in my life but how do you get away with 
uh, you know, so much of this corruption, so much of this evil that they carry out. Well, just like any good uh, illusionist or magician, they get you to look one way or they do something with their other hand. And we don't know what's going on with the other hand at the moment, but we do have some information, at least we uh, yesterday on Hagman Report talked about a report, and I'm going to pull it up. Um, I have not done so yet this morning, but there was a document, a memo on the future of the freedom of speech on the internet drafted up by a Democratic senator, um, and i got to find it here, but I think it was on Reason.com. Uh, let me go check there. And I did not post it last night on Hagman Report, which is what I wanted to do. But, yeah, let me find it here. Okay, so you have the uh, move to censor the freedom of speech on the Internet. And you have a document out there that is laying the groundwork for this to become a realization through law. I mean, they're going they're the uh, Democrats in the Senate and I'm sure in the House are putting together a legislative blueprint for exactly what needs to happen as far as uh, the, the terms and guidelines of the Internet in order to silence the opposition, to ban the conservative speech. And here I just found it. Senate Democrats are circulating plans to gov for government takeover of the Internet. And in this article from Reason.com, there is a document that takes you to a PDF. The title of the document is Potential Policy Proposals for Regulation of Social Media and Technology Firms. Senator Mark Warren um, is the one who is behind this, who is the author of this. He wrote this paper which starts out by noting that the Russians have long spread disinformation, including when the Soviets tried to spread fake news denigrating Martin Luther King. He fails to mention the FBI, and Americans did the same thing, but now it's different due to technology, the article states. Today's tools seem almost built for Russian disinformation techniques, Warner opines. But look, I laugh because it's hysterical and funny to me to see, you know, the, even Alyssa Milano blamed the Ohio election on the Russians yesterday. It's it's lunacy. But when they're using it as a basis to further restrict freedoms and, and uh, guaranteed by the Constitution, not necessarily guaranteed to be allowed on these platforms, but certainly... You have the right to say it, correct? Well, not including, uh, according to Mark, who is it here? Mark Warner, who wrote this document. And uh, I don't want to read the whole thing, but some of the highlights that I noted in here, uh, as it does mention Russia, as it does talk about, you know, the future of the Internet. Russia is a key pivotal point in this document, uh, talking about in the course of investigating Russians' unprecedented interference in the 2016 election, the extent to which many of these technologies may have been exploited, and their providers caught repeatedly flat-footed has been unmistakable. The more illuminating the capacity of these technologies to be exploited by bad actors, the revelations of the last year have revealed the dark underbelly of the entire ecosystem. The speed with which these products have grown and come to dominate nearly every aspect of our social, political, and economic lives has in many ways obscured the shortcomings of their creators in anticipating harmful effects of their use. 
Government has failed to adapt and has been incapable or unwilling to adequately address the impacts of these trends on privacy, competition, and public discourse. Armed with this knowledge, it is time to begin to address the issues to work to adapt our regulations and laws. There are three areas that should be of particular focus for policymakers. First, understanding the capacity for communication technologies to promote disinformation that undermines trust in our institutions, democracy, and free press markets. Now, that's number one. And, and under that first subsection, he mentions the spreading of fake news and how propaganda and fake news is not seen on a scale or is seen on a scale that was unimaginable back in the days of the Berlin Wall. Also in this report, as we know, failing to mention their own propaganda, their own lies. This is the furthering of a lie. <clears throat> and I've never seen a lie or set of lies be so you uh, uh, be so accepted to a, a percentage of the population <clears throat> it's very it's probably one of the most troubling things about this the inability of people to be able to distinguish between truth and fact or their unwillingness to do so is very indicative of the times we live in and with the type of people we are dealing with and how if they won't even be honest with themselves about simple truths how can we expect them to be anything but crazy i mean even the, the most the smartest <clears throat> most wise people never think themselves to be right because then in doing so you constantly drowned out the uh the the potential for uh you know uh, discourse and debate in your mind the the second you think you know 100 percent, you know you're right on this issue or that issue is the second you're, you're basically closing off your mind to the possibilities of of other things you might not have even considered before but anyway <clears throat> Number two, uh, the second dimension relates to consumer protection in the digital age, as though you can't protect yourself from what is true or what is false. And as I just said, it seems that people are believing these lies. It, they are believing these lies much in much more wide numbers than ever before. But this is not the same content as what the senator is addressing in this document okay this is all a smokescreen and it goes it gets into it uh you know the fake news the russians it's all against the conservatives and the christians it has no basis in fact except for the point that it is against their way of thinking their agenda their ideology and because their ideology is so evil so twisted just everything they promote from abortion Illegal immigration, perversion, and anybody who says that it's not perverse to push gender-bending transgenderism onto children is wrong. And I, it, that, that's open and shut in my book. But this is what they've chose to run on, and this is what they've chose to, you know, get jump on the train and get behind. It seems they're all of, you know, unified thought. And, uh, you know, they're putting their foot down. And they started with Alex Jones. And there was an interesting interview yesterday. Michael Savage had Jones on. And I uh, started listening to that this morning. I only got, I don't know, maybe halfway through. But it was a, a very good piece that Savage has done. I'd urge everybody to go download his podcast from yesterday and at least listen to that interview. But back to the Mark Warren document. He goes on to talk about important policy mechanisms that require greater disclosure for the ability of the government and internet companies to collect real-time information like the uh, where you are when you post 
Uh, and if you saw, Facebook is asking banks for your financial data. Will they acquiesce to the social media company? Most likely. And what does that mean? We'll talk about that with Stephen Menking when he comes on. The third point in this document, it says, lastly, the rise of a few dominant platforms poses key problems for long-term competition, innovation across multiple markets, including digital advertising markets, uh, future markets driven by machine learning and artificial intelligence and communication technology markets. And it goes on to talk about how user data is increasingly the single most important economic input in information markets, allowing for more targeted and relevant advertising, facilitating refining of services to make them more engaging and efficient and providing the basis for any machine learning algorithms which for instance develop decisional rules based on pattern matching in large data sets on which all industries increasingly rely and it goes on from here to talk about the uh, advantages that the tech companies have uh, over you know everybody else because they're so big and dominant but it also goes on to talk about disinformation misinformation and exploitation of technology due to a conspicuous a duty to clearly and conspicuously label bots. And this is uh, gets interesting. It says bots play a significant role in the amplification of uh, dissemination of disinformation. Bot enabled amplification has been utilized for promoting scams and financial frauds. New technologies such as Google's Assistant AI-enabled duplex will increasingly make bots indistinguishable from humans. To protect consumers and to inhibit the use of bots for amplification for both disinformation and uh, propaganda platforms should be under an obligation to label bots they provide uh, and those used on the platforms they maintain bot-enabled accounts. California lawmakers have proposed something like it. Uh, referred to as the Blade Runner law after the 1980s movie. Anyway, they go on to talk about the duty uh, to figure out the origin of posts. And let me tell you something. Yeah, there are bots on the internet, but guess what? They are not as prevalent as many people think. And they go. And this guy goes on. And I know I haven't hit the the real key points. More of the uh, uh, just some of the highlights I chose. But he goes on to to criticize. People who criticize LGBT groups or other human right groups and talks about the fact checking element of this, uh, you know, using their own fact checkers as we see these wide, very unreliable people who call them or institutions who call themselves fact checkers are the most uh, dishonest that they are the as dishonest as the rest of the media. And to give these people any type of credibility or legitimacy by making it a law that these people decide what the truth is on the internet would destroy the internet. And that's basically the key takeaway from this. If anything else can be taken away from this is that they're moving on the first amendment. They're moving to ban their speech that they find to be disruptive to their narrative. And we see the continued, I mean, uh, uh, Alex Jones, he's being, I'm surprised he still has an iPhone that works. Uh, he, you know, the uh, comment section, discuss. They even terminated his discuss accounts on his website. So it was the platform used to comment on InfoWars. They have terminated his comment service. And there's more. I mean, he's been banned on TuneIn and all these other... Uh, it's only a matter of time. And there's an interesting story I posted on Hagman Report yesterday that 
uh, was very eye-opening, and I want to make sure I get this right, so I'm going to pull up the, the website here. Uh, Alex Jones app, as he has been censored all over the uh, internet, except for Twitter, and as we know, he has a new app that he has been promoting, which gives you direct access to a you know the, the audio and video of his show. And as soon as uh, yesterday, the, the trending hashtags on Twitter was still Alex Jones, but as the day progressed yesterday, his app moved up the charts on uh, the iTunes store or on the App Store and Apple iStore and on Google. And it was up above CNN and above everything else. It was up at the number four. So it says this in Breitbart. After the InfoWars app overtook CNN on Apple's charts, ranking as the fourth largest, I'm sorry, the fourth most popular free app, the cable news lobbied Apple to remove the app from its platform. InfoWars shot up the charts following censorship of its accounts on most major platforms, which ended with the network being banned from YouTube, Facebook, Apple products, and Spotify. As of this writing, InfoWars is currently the fourth most most popular free app on the Apple Store, beating CNN, New York Times, Google News, Huffington Post, and dozens of other mainstream news outlets. InfoWars' growing success on the App Store prompted CNN to call for further censorship isn't that crazy i mean they do everything in their power these people not only create the lies and propagate the lies but then they take everything out of context they misrepresent it deceptively edit it package it as though it were the fact the truth and you know the history and then what they do is when you are, they do listen to these companies, the CNNs and others, and they ban Alex Jones across the board. And, you know, they leave an outlet here open and an outlet there open, such as Twitter. Uh, many people attacked Twitter yesterday because they refused to further ban Jones. And the same thing with this app. They see they just can't get away from it. And Alex Jones on Amazon today has turned into a problem for many people as, uh, you know, the outrage mobs continue uh, to, to try to suppress any and everything they can. And it is uh, very eye-opening to see the lines being drawn and how many people are unwilling to support freedom of speech because of the person who is the one speaking and how they feel about him or how they feel about uh, whatever it is that, I mean, it's amazing to me to see the lines being drawn, the sides that are being taken in this fight. And, you know, we have people who are standing up, even Ben Shapiro, as backhandedly as it was, said uh, that he didn't want to see crazy Alex Jones censored. But, you know, he goes in there to throw the word crazy in. And, uh, you know, whatever. He still has, uh, you know, come out in support of the First Amendment of freedom of speech. But when you see the lines that are being drawn as far as whether you like Alex Jones or not, that's not the point. The people who are defending uh, his ability to be able to speak on these platforms versus those who are cheering for further censorship. Uh, it, it's very eye-opening to see, and it's uh, troublesome at the same time, but the, the freedom of speech continues to fall, uh, to come under attack. The banning of uh, Jones, and I'm sure soon to come, other conservative platforms, more conservative platforms, is not enough. They're going after you know 
his app. They're going after his mail, his his chat uh, uh, ability to chat. As I said, discuss the chat function. They removed their features from his website. It won't be long before he's unable to access the internet. And you think that's a joke, but it's really not. That's what I see coming in the future. And we have with us Stephen Menking uh, on the Objective is the podcast. He posts them on Hagman Report. Stephen, it's great to have you back on. We're talking about censorship, but I want to get your take on this first. The Ocasio-Cortez gave an interview yesterday where she said the upper middle class is gone. And I wanted to talk about historically how in authoritarian regimes, this is one of the ways that they separate uh, the you know the elite from the underclass. They turn it into a two-class system with the extremely rich versus the rest of the, the civilization, the poverty, and how that is destructive to a society when you only, when you have fewer economic classes. Well, it's a pleasure to be back with you here, Joe. Can you? Because I didn't see this interview if you can imagine that um but um what was what was the context of the remark saying that the upper middle class was gone yeah. what okay, do you have so, any any idea what what she meant by that or what the question was in, in response to yeah let me pull it up here um see i played the i didn't play that part of the interview but that's the title of the headline on the washington free beacon and mm-hmm. uh, we got through the first part of this but she she starts by l- listening i don't know who's talking to her anymore Uh, in her ear telling her these things that she's saying but she's quoting all these numbers that you know 80 percent of americans want a a living wage and uh you know 65 percent of americans want single-payer health care system she says all these numbers and none of it's true but she goes on to say that the, the whole country is further left than congress the whole country is more liberal than congress but she does say about the uh the wage that she says, for me, I think what's happening is a lot of these folks were in the political heyday in third way 90s politics. And they were campaigning and were really kind of connected to most, connected most to an electorate when they were fighting for those seats. When we did, we had more American middle class, she added. I think that politically, this upper middle class is probably more moderate, but that upper middle class doesn't exist anymore in America. And thanks to the continued deregulation of wall street thanks to the continued gutting of working and middle class people uh we need stronger champions and i don't know what question i don't even know what any of that stuff actually means and but you you see the same kind of thing coming out of uh cory booker where he's talking about the platform and it's all just a bunch of platitude uh word salad nonsense so let's let's talk a bit more concretely about some of these topics so that we can hopefully iron out things in a common sense way and here's here's the metric if you know something well enough to explain it to someone else in a way that they understand it then you actually know something. If you speak (laughs) and you can't communicate things that uh, increase people's awareness outside of the context of simply repeating what you say, then that's not evidence of real knowledge. That's evidence of ideology, which is which is something completely different. Anyone can memorize an ideology. Right, it's very straightforward to do that. Who's so, in her ear? Who's telling her to say these things? Or who's advising her not to say these things? That's I, especially honest, she's the future of the party. 
I I do not I do not know, but but certainly an interesting case study. And because we are uh, somewhat contemporaries, I'm two years older than her, um, and we're in the same in the same state. I can I can speak a little bit more directly from my economic study and my experience working in the financial industry. There is a specific nugget of of truth there that is important to hang on to. Many of the problems that we see are indeed because of deregulation of uh, Wall Street, and that had to do with the repealing of Glass-Steagall, which was actually done by the Clinton administration with the uh, at the behest of the Republican Congress as well. But essentially what that did was it broke down the wall between commercial and investment banks. Commercial banks uh, are supposed to take in deposits and loan money to people to uh, get mortgages and and purchase uh, vehicles and invest in uh, building companies. Um, investment banks are supposed to take capital from investors and then deploy it as see as they see fit or offer financial consultancy and um, and other kind of services to existing companies. Let's say uh, a company wants to acquire a different company and they want someone to serve as their proxy uh, for negotiations and for financial analysis. They will hire an investment bank to facilitate that process, but it it strikes me as a platitude to say Wall Wall Street is bad, and it's technically speaking true. Wall Street is bad, and it is be- because of this deregulation. However, if we're actually going to address the economic issues, then we have to speak about them in an intelligible way. I mean, this is just nonsense. Like, how could you even uh, how could you even listen to this for more than thirty seconds uh, unless you're interested in um, in hearing the same old garbage? garbage with less of a fine-tuned uh, oration around it. So here, here's the real deal. The real deal is that when we look at income and wealth and equality versus inequality figures, we are looking at things as a, as a snapshot. What we're not taking into account is the mobility that takes place over people's lives. So if you can imagine this, people have different levels of income and different levels of wealth at different points in their life. And so even though there is this notion of, oh, there's a there's a rock solid 1% that keeps all of the wealth, that actually extends a great deal. And people have a better chance than not, uh, given certain prerequisites, of being in the top 1% of income earners for at least a couple of years of their life. Now, to stay there the entire time is very difficult and against the odds. But inequality itself is indeed a problem. We can't skew too far into into income and wealth inequality because it it creates unbalances that are not appropriate for a civilized society. But the question that's is what I wanted to ask you. The in the in traditional authoritarian type systems, this is what this is how they move uh, closer and closer to this total control where we've seen, you know, communist Russia and the Hitlers. And we've seen the, uh, uh, the constant wiping out of millions of people over uh, the last 100, 150 years. These types of systems is that they first start with the, uh, you know, we see it now, the censorship, the labeling of people and then the division of, uh, of, of economic classes to extremes. And we were we haven't seen that yet, but this is what the uh, really the liberal agenda their ideology has been pushing now and wants to implement as soon as they take power again. 
Right. So I think that that is the that is the natural endpoint of the coalescing of power in a in a totalitarian sense, whether we're looking at it from the left or from the right. And I think a lot of this has to do with people literally using different definitions for socialism or for the newly invented, relatively newly invented term democratic socialism. I am going to read a definition that shows up from Wikipedia, and then I'm going to describe a better metric that we can use to evaluate things. So here's what Wikipedia says. Socialism is a range of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership and democratic control of the means of production, as well as the political theories and movements associated with them. Social ownership may refer to forms of public, collective, or cooperative ownership, or to citizen ownership of equity. There are many varieties of socialism, and there's no single definition encapsulating all of them, though social ownership is the common element shared by its various forms, and they can be divided into market and non-market forms. So basically, the definition of socialism is anything you want it to be. And what people will do when they're discussing this topic is they will fail to agree on the definition and the policy and the regime that we're referring to. And people will say, look, Venezuela is the example of socialism. And other people will say, no, the the Scandinavian countries are the example of socialism. And here is the here is the fine line that I'd like to deploy. Socialism is a representation of when the government or all citizens collectively own or can make decisions about, without appeal to an external authority, the deployment of means of production. What this means is, and the furthest extent of this is indeed communism, where the government owns everything, the government dictates the prices at which goods are to be exchanged and produced and sold, and where people's roles in the society are determined by the government. So communism is totalitarian under the illusion of everyone uh, everyone owning a piece and and participating in the process it is it is a grand deception to you know use these kind of words as referring to uh, democratic structures where private property still holds but that the government is large that's really what is in place in the Scandinavian countries where even even the people there uh, will will say well we're not that that full socialist kind of definition where we control the means of production. You just have high taxes and a large government with respect to the overall size of the economy. That is not, in in my definition, technically socialist. It's just a large government. Um, and when people... Uh, on the on the left will refer to socialism or democratic socialism that is typically i think what they mean if they are sort of well-meaning people who say well you know there's nothing wrong with socialism that's where everyone everyone gets involved and the government takes care of people and and we provide these sorts of services they're not uh, they're not interested in a conversation about the more the greater nuance to it. But let me let me declare prima facie that the the proper value that describes and creates human flourishing is freedom and property rights and societal stability. And if you don't have any of those, you don't have any economic development, period. If you don't have the capacity to make investments into projects that will generate productivity over the long term, um, then nothing is going to happen in terms of upward mobility, which is what everyone wants. Every 
if if everyone we can make everyone rich on a nominal basis by just debasing the currency why doesn't the government just print ten, print a hundred quadrillion dollars and make everyone trillionaires well that's because it wouldn't make everyone rich and so we have to consider the overall matrix of policies that that go into place and long story short when the government takes a larger role then the people take a smaller role in terms of their autonomy and their freedom and their ability to pursue what they do best. And it's when people are set free to pursue what they do best in their comparative advantage that we get the real productivity gains. And to suggest otherwise is um, unfortunately ignorant of uh, pretty much everything in economic and historical fact in in the real prerequisites to economic development, like I said, are a properly functioning legal system, property rights, which in essence means that people can be directly rewarded for the fruits of their labor, so they have the incentive to put in that effort, and a, a, a normal, stable civil society. And right now, we see governments all around the world and and our culture here in the United States looking aggressively to tilt away from these things and off of the cliff. And we have so many different examples throughout history that the claim that, oh, well, they all did it wrong, but when we're in charge, we can, we'll do it better. It's, it's an absolute garbage misrepresentation of, of human nature. If you're, if you're in charge with, with good intentions, and this is an argument that uh, Jordan Peterson has made, if you're in charge of a totalitarian uh, slash communist uh, state and you have good intentions, then you will be taken out immediately by the people around you with bad intentions. And so as a result, as a dictator, as a totalitarian, you get paranoid because you understand that you are under threat all the time and paranoid scares people do very strange and evil and unexpected things like slaughter tens of millions of their own people. So the problem here at its root is a lack of understanding, and that is being amplified and exaggerated by a lack of discussion, sophistication, and agreement about even the terms that are being used. So when you see surveys of um, people uh, people asking millennials and saying, oh, well, you know, the majority of millennials are in favor of socialism rather than capitalism. It's because they don't understand those those terms. It is true that capitalism, uh, as, it's, as it has been implemented here in the West, has been hijacked, essentially, by the by the central banks and by the people who determine the flow of money. And it is that that creates this, uh, this inequality at the highest uh, upper echelons. But, and I have, I have news for people. If you think that Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, if you think that these are the richest people in the world, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what to tell you. Like it's not, it's not possible just because someone doesn't show up on the Forbes list doesn't mean that they don't have secret wealth. And if you don't think that the family, uh, the royal dynasties and all of the different powers that create structure. Yeah. Or even even people even further behind the scenes. If yeah. you don't think that they have more money than Jeff Bezos, then you're out of your mind. Then you, you but it's it's fair. It's like. What do you what do you do and what do you say to to people who 
haven't done the research because they don't know where to look, who can't make an argument because they don't know the terms, and who can't have a conversation because they've conditioned, uh, they've been conditioned to believe that anyone who disagrees with them is uh, a subhuman Nazi who's not worthy of even being able to speak. That's yeah. that's that's where we're at, and so it's no it's no surprise to see this sort of literal insanity. But when and and people would compare this to to President Trump, right? They'll say, oh, well, he's he's crass, he's overly direct, he's unpresidential, he's, un- he's undiplomatic. He's simply speaking in a direct way, putting it in terms that that people can identify with in in simple kind of kind of phrasings and often striking at the heart of some of the grievances that that people have held and felt for for so long, particularly during the previous administration. So it's a, it's a challenge. It's a very significant challenge to even begin to set the ground for a an actual conversation in this space when you know when people's resources are out of whack. But it, and and it's certainly not helped by people sort of just spouting economic babble with not yeah. much of an understanding about how anything works, let alone the ability to explain it to other people. So long story short, freedom is absolutely priceless in terms of its capability to generate prosperity freedom creates prosperity and law and restrictions on freedom destroy prosperity now there are different sorts of cases in one direction or another but you can boil it down to that and that's why most people i would imagine who hold conservative views uh, hold them essentially to say that the the more power the government has, then the less power the people have. And this, in a very real extent, is one of the few zero sum games. There's a zero sum game in terms of um, in terms of legal control and everything else like that. When when a right is granted to someone or taken away from someone, it is then uh, transferred away from uh, from the other counterparty. So if the government has power in an area, then the people don't have power in an area unless there's proper checks and balances. But uh, long story short, we're getting into too much civics. Let's let's boil it down to the basic level, truly basic level, that freedom is individual freedom is a necessary prerequisite to economic prosperity. And there are many issues that we have to deal with, including inequality. Like, no one should say that, all right, you know, let's just propagate policies that in, that increase inequality to the, to the nth degree. But that is, ironically, what people who advocate for socialism, or even for outright communism, which, which you do have people who advocate for that, um, that, is, that is what they're going for. So individual freedom, greater prosperity. Restrictions on individual freedom, restrictions on prosperity. And we should all be encouraging the kind of dialogue that can approach that that kind of policy that generates human flourishing. But sadly, the definition of human flourishing and even the definition of human is human and even flourishing are way are totally yeah. up for grabs in this postmodern era. You know, that's one of the the main takeaways, uh, you know, from today is the the ability for, or I guess what I'm saying is <clears throat> never in history have I seen so many people, a percentage of our population, believe these series of lies that are being, uh, you know, built on uh, by the big tech firms. And I mean, we have a, a serious percentage of our population that is disillusioned out of reality and they don't care what the truth is. They're stuck in their way of thinking. And never have I seen 
people so defensive of lies. And that, that's probably one of the most alarming things about what we're seeing take place today. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, again, it's up to the definitions. It is something where people look at the same thing and someone says, well, that's a lie. And the other says, that's a truth. And a third says, it doesn't matter what either one of you think. It's not a real disagreement because to you it's true and to you it's false. And who am I to tell the difference? And in that kind of sense, you have to wonder, where did this all come from? Where do you where do you trace it back to? Do you go to the deconstructionists, the French intellectuals 50 years ago? Really? Do you have to go a little bit a uh, little bit further back to Weishaupt and, and Darwin and the rest of those thinkers in the 19th century and even the 18th? Do you have to go back even further, even further, all the way all the way back to the beginning, to the original lie? The real question is, who determines right and wrong, if there even is such a thing? And that fundamental question of philosophy and of virtue has been answered in many different ways by many different cultures and peoples. And I think that today in our culture, we have literally the worst interpretation of that kind of philosophy of virtue. That is to say, it's totally up for grabs. There's no standard. You can make of it whatever you will, because then in the next breath, you turn around and say, well, this person is wrong, or we have to we have to censor this kind of, uh, this kind of operation for promoting uh, certain ideas. Well, if there's no such thing as true and false, and there's no such thing as right and wrong, as as these people believe, you you live in this uh, this ultimate conundrum where the the postmodernists have allied with the with the Marxists to say that okay, there is no. There is no up or down, right or wrong, true or false. All that there is is power, and so anything that can be used as a means to an end can and will be used up to and including harassment and violence and gaslighting and lies and anything else because there's no moral code then your justification in um, in assuming power is absolute you can do whatever you'd like in the name of quote unquote justice and equality but all of that is just code for power and for control which is the antithesis of human liberty and freedom which is what actually creates human flourishing so this is ultimately a, a just a massive lie and the natural outcropping of rejecting god of rejecting the true source of moral authority and the true standard of righteousness that we are all tasked and instructed and even commanded to live up to and it's because we've tried uh, to throw off the shackles of uh, you know of of the God of Christianity, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we have found ourselves in this position, and so it is only by returning to God that we will receive the kind of sanity that that we so dearly miss. I mean. When the prophets say that truth is fallen in the streets, when you see these scripture references about uh, God driving people into into a strong delusion, when you understand that entire nations can literally go insane and lose yeah. their way, then you understand the kind of dynamic that we are in. And when you look at the Old Testament, it's frustrating to see the repentance and the restoration of the nation of Israel and then immediately falling back into um, into into spiritual tra uh, practices that led them away from God. It's frustrating to see yeah. that over and over and over and over and over again. But in that frustrating example, we see the model that we need to follow. We need to get back to God. We need to get back to 
um, trusting him instead of leaning on our own understanding because our own understanding in many situations has been polluted by years and decades and generations and even centuries and millennia worth of lies and and sophisticated deceptions now this doesn't mean that you should go off the go off the deep end but it does mean that you should return to a a time of rest and of looking at God's word and really seeking out a relationship with him and asking God to, with, with the, the humility of heart to say, God, where, what is, what is the truth? Show me, I need, I need to see through your eyes. You are, you are the standard and that is how I'm going to measure everything else. You know, there's a there's a concept known as uh, Wittgenstein's ruler. Wittgenstein was a Austrian philosopher about uh, and and linguist about a, a century ago. He wrote his wrote his first uh, philosophical treatise in the trenches of World War One. Actually, a a fascinating story as an individual. But this concept was that if you have a if you have a ruler, but the ruler is of uncertain length, and you're measuring a table, well, is the table measuring the ruler? Or is the ruler measuring the table? You don't know if there isn't a fixed and agreed upon standard in advance. Otherwise, everything is just relative. And so we see we see the same dynamic coming into play here, whether we're talking about economics or politics or, or anything else, matters of spirituality or even uh, personal decision-making and familial relationships. Right now, we have a profound, serious, and somber duty to return to the Word, to return to prayer, to return turn to God and to press in to expunge ourselves of all of the different layers of deceptions. And some of it is uh, painful. It's a refiner's fire. It's a, it's a sifting process. It's, it's difficult to go through. And sometimes it's painful. But I can tell you from personal experience that it is worth it. The peace of God that he provides when you humble your heart and when you approach him and when you earnestly seek relationship with him, that is more valuable than anything else. It has eternal weight and it can provide you the spiritual resources to walk in power in this crazy and confused world and people regardless of their vitriol regardless of their um their directness and speech and their willingness to be acerbic and, and offensive and uh and inflammatory and hypocritical and everything else like that people are in pain people are insecure people don't know which way is up and they're always looking for that they're looking for meaning and right now they're looking for it in the wrong places because they don't even know they don't even know that there is a God in heaven. They don't even know that his son, Jesus Christ, died to save us from our sins and to reconcile us to God. They don't know these things. And so speak to them. Open up. If someone says something to you that's inflammatory or ridiculous uh, in, in person and you're having a conversation, just, uh, just ask questions. Don't just start responding with immediate accusations and everything else. You know, show, show people that they can, they, can have, uh, they can have a real, proper human conversation. People are just missing that connection because yeah. of the digital communication and everything else. I know we're running short on time here, Joe, but oh, we got a little, that's, we got a little bit that's more the message. 
but yeah, you're right. You know, the technology and the social media environment that we live in has really isolated people much further uh, than anything else I've seen in society. And uh, just in, in a matter of 10 years, we've went from having a, a normal even type of society with certain technological advantages no other uh, civilizations have had to uh, completely isolated and and it's amazing to watch this transformation unfold at the same time you know it shows us the time period that we're living in and as you mentioned earlier uh, the ability and when, you know when prophecy comes to life when we live in these times of rapid change uh, and and we see this change happening just in short spans of time uh, amazing things can happen prophetic things can happen and one of the things that's so fascinating and uh, uh, real about this is that, you know, many people uh, see the timing. Uh, Israel is a nation again. We see the stuff happening in the Middle East. All these prophetic indicators and signs are there. And now we're seeing some of uh, even our worst fears being realized with the uh, conservative Christian speech and uh, ideology being demonized to the point of extinction in America it really uh, makes you, you know, want to grab your Bible and 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 just, you know, read that and pray because it's uh, it, it's not it's not a long road from here to what we've seen historically in other authoritarian governments. It's very short from this point forward if the right things happen <clears throat> or are caused to happen. It it certainly is. It's not a. It's not too long of a, of a pathway. You can see it. And that's why it is worth standing up. It is worth pressing into God. It is worth praying. It is worth doing all of these things because we don't have a choice. If we do, then the liberty and the personal freedoms that we have will slip away. They will be taken from us. That intent is shown and displayed in more serious a manner than ever before. And if you can't see that or can't recognize that, then it means that you're pretty much off the grid and probably not listening here. So ultimately... We do have this responsibility. We serve a God who is capable of all things. Nothing is impossible with him that is consistent with his nature and that isn't a logical contradiction. But uh, without delving into the apologetic aspect of, of that and the, and the hard theology, suffice it to say that we have a responsibility in this hour that is somber and sacred, not even just for our own sakes, but for the sakes of uh, future generations and our progeny. It is not the norm for people to have individual freedom in the history of human civilization. The norm is for people to be oppressed and for people to be trodden down. We have an experiment in human freedom that has been endowed and given to us by our God and by our Creator and stands based on our commitment to Him. And as we have walked away, we have seen our freedoms lessen. And if we will go to Him, we can see our freedoms restored. But we have work to do in terms of fleshing out and dealing with the just absolutely potentially overwhelming, remarkable evil that we see in our generation from the the less overtly insidious, just general cluelessness of people and inability to speak coherently about certain topics of uh, of meaning to the just general distraction and the malaise yeah. that people are in to 
uh, up to and including the deliberate acts of malignant evil and abusive children and and murder and everything else that's too unspeakable uh, even to even to begin to name even though we have to we have to do that but long story short if we don't express the kind of forgiveness and love that God has called us to walk in then we aren't going to be able to receive the strength and guidance from the Holy Spirit so that we can have the courage to stand up in these times so like I've encouraged all of uh, all of your listeners here on the Hagman Daily Show repeatedly, it's time to pray, it's time to press into God, it's time to receive that nourishment and that strength, but be encouraged because Jesus, the one who we serve, the one who we aim to obey, has overcome this world. And if we are overwhelmed by him, by his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his power, his forgiveness, then we will not be overwhelmed by the troubling situations that we face. Very well said, Stephen, and uh, as right on the money as always, and we got about two and a half, three minutes left. Just want to ask you this in, in closing. Um, the censorship, the obviously Alex Jones being censored almost from the Internet completely, uh, the top story you know, probably of the year so far, but how do you see this? I mean, obviously the speculation. How do you see this playing out? Do you see a, a, a rapid intensification across the board, or do you see this going a little bit slower and uh, – uh, you know, uh, one here, one there, uh, you know, uh, how do you see this continuing moving forward? Because obviously uh, this is creating a dividing line and you see the people reacting to this and uh, taking sides. And uh, I just see this as the obviously the first step in a long uh, trying to cleanse the Internet of what the opposition is saying, their opposition is saying. Well, I see, Joe, generally speaking, that part of this effort is part of an all-in bet on the 2018 midterms. And so I would expect the, there to be an escalation of these, uh, of these sorts of efforts. And if they are successful, then they will continue to be pursued. It is up to the people to stand up and, and use the resources from a, from a legal perspective that are, that are at their disposal and, and everything else like that. But I do think that this kind of action is ultimately going to lead to a situation where the government, uh, takes a, takes a different look at the, the kind of technology services that are being offered. Because if you position yourself as an open platform where, where everyone can participate, that's a totally different thing than uh, expressing yourself and positioning yourself as a publisher where you uh, you control the content from an from an editorial perspective and we're in a gray area there so that hasn't necessarily been decided and what this will do I believe is create more incentive for uh, alternate platforms to to spring up. This is this is just technology, and it's a network effect. And so, if if every single existing legacy uh, platform decided to give the boot to, let's say, the the top ten. Um, Top ten conservative and and libertarian libertarian networks uh, or, or influential individuals, and all of them decided en masse to take their network someplace else. That would be a real meaningful change, and the. The Silicon Valley people and the people that run them are willing to do this for for temporary gain, mm -hmm. so that they can hopefully influence the the 2018 elections. And, or, and real quick, and, and yeah, yesterday, go ahead. Uh, yesterday, we saw the win uh, by a Republican in a narrow margin in Ohio. Uh, you know, Trump boasts five for five wins. Does that paint any kind of picture or indicator for what we have coming up in November? 
Well, not not if not if you look at Twitter, where you know half of the people are saying, um, "Oh, you know, this is indication of a of a blue wave because Trump, you know, yeah, these are districts where Trump should have won by more." For me, I would I would look at the nature of primaries and special elections and everything else significantly different than um, than broader elections where where more people are paying attention. And because, to be perfectly honest, Joe, I don't necessarily trust the integrity of the election process. Yep. And, and so I don't know what it portends. Um, but what I do know is that, you know, it's certainly better for President Trump than the alternative going yeah. going going zero for five. So that in some ways is a, is a positive kind of statement. I don't think that these numbers are fully representative of what we would what we would see in November either way. But that's just because it's, it's a smaller kind of thing. Absolutely. God bless. The Hagman Daily Show is brought to you by The Hagman Report. Tune in to The Hagman Report weekdays, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. For more information, go to HagmanReport.com. That's HagmanReport.com.